what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Natalie Haynes is a writer, broadcaster and classicist, as well as writing for The Guardian. She's a regular contributor to BBC Radio 4. Four series of her show, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, have been broadcast there. And she's written three extremely successful novels, including most recently, A Thousand Ships, a children's novel and a non-fiction book, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. Most importantly, she's a patron of Humanist UK. Natalie Haynes, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Thanks for having me. You're a comedian, novelist, broadcaster, but I thought we'd start with you in your aspect as classicist. Um, which what is gave of... <laughs> you that idea, Andrew? What on earth made that seem like a tempting offer to you exactly. in particular? I wonder. Right. People don't know that I'm also a classicist, actually. You are. You're I've, I've totally one of us. I've on yep. this. Um, I've added myself. Um, but it's not just personal sympathy um, that makes you want to start there. I think it's, uh, it's obviously a strand that unites all your other work as well you know from novels to broadcasting and everything else and your the book that people will most likely have heard of in terms of being specifically about classics is of course the book that we've just realized is 10 years old this year oh um, how's yes. this happen <laughs> the, i don't like it sorry but it's true must face <laughs> the truth face reality with your eyes open it's the humanist way yeah i know um the ancient guide to modern life yeah, 10 years old. I just can't believe old. it. So I've known, it, it's existed for as long as I've known you, basically. That's true, We've, actually. Their, their anniversaries are almost identical in my life, which is really nice. Which really is ancient. Yeah, sorry about that. That's okay. Now in that book, obviously, you drew lessons from um, some of the beliefs and approaches of, of people from the classical world for our time today. And would you yes. say that that was also a, a source of some of your uh, important beliefs? Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know this, I think, already, mm. uh, that I have a terrible, terrible habit of cherry picking the bits of ancient philosophy that I like and then disregarding. But in a way, as a classicist, you kind of have to, because everybody that we might be inspired by and interested in, like Plato or Aristotle, also believes things that are absolutely untenable in the modern world. You know, Aristotle has no problem with um, slavery existing, for example. The misogyny that runs through the work of pretty well all ancient authors is, is absolute. The racism as we would perceive it today, although I guess for them it probably wasn't to do with race because race is a, a relatively more modern construct, I think, mm. but to do with being Greek versus anywhere else or Roman versus anywhere else, barbarian as, as they tended to uh, dysphemize it, I suppose. Um, um, I, I th we have to. We have to look at these things critically and in context, uh, which isn't a question of trying to make them anachronistic, but it is a question of saying, okay, what's, what here is amazing and what here do we need to ask questions about? And the things that we might want to ask questions about, how, does that, how did that affect and impact on the stuff that we find amazing? Does it devalue at all? In my view, very much not. Um, but if you ask somebody like Professor Edith Hall, who wrote Aristotle's Way, she is 
a massive Aristotle nerd, uh, even by my standards, which is saying something. Her view is very much that because Aristotle was so keen on inquiry um, and the value to be had in interrogating any view and then revising it, she, she, her argument is always, and I, it's really hard to disagree, um, that you know, 10 minutes having a drink with her and me and you know, two or three other brilliant women, and he would simply change his mind about women not being equal <laughs> to men. And you go, oh, okay, well, that makes it much easier to like him again. <laughs> I, th I sort of think that's true, though. I think that's I right. Too. I think that, you know, yeah. you, you can, that's the measure of him, isn't it? At least through yes. his work, is that that would be the case. Do you, is, is Aristotelian inquiry something that you value personally? Yes. Yeah. Being curious and interested seems to me the route to happiness far more times than not um and this isn't to to disregard any one of a number of incredibly important other things that you need um and aristotle is brilliant on that in the nicomachean ethics where he talks about how you basically need to be lucky before you can embark on philosophical inquiry you need to be you know smart enough to understand it rich enough to be able to afford the time you know not suddenly bereaved so that you're too grief stricken to you know not in an accident so that you're in too much pain to he's completely aware of the value of luck in our lives which i i it's, it's just so unusual to find that emphasis because of course he himself had lost both parents as a teenager and had been adopted by a a uh, family, you know, friend or relative, I can't remember, an uncle maybe, or, mm. you know, and, and then th that, that relative was really um, aware that he'd got an unusual person in his home <laughs> with Aristotle and pushed him really hard, you know, to, to study. And, and so Aristotle's whole life was, was almost in jeopardy and then suddenly saved by, by good fortune. So he's really conscious of it. But yes, I think having the time and space and yes brutally money um to be able to think about things and learn about things is an enormous privilege i don't really understand why everybody wouldn't do it if they had time i, I love learning new things and you know this is true of me because in the time that i've known you you know i will always be going oh yeah i'm writing this book about this and i really want to learn how to make this radio series okay now i want to learn how to write novels okay now i can do it now i want to learn kickboxing okay now and so i i do really like acquiring skills it makes me happy it makes you happy i mean that's it the does. point of it is it this this open inquiry and curiosity it's the it's the part of fulfillment that's that's why you it want is. it yeah yeah i do and also i think it does make you look at the world a little bit differently because if you're constantly looking for um new skills to acquire then kind of by definition you you're always looking for value in other people a bit which i suppose you could construe as just being utilitarian i don't mean it that way um but i think it would be really possible to live in quite a an intellectually sheltered world and and i would still be able to write novels i don't think they would be as good um i'd still be able to write about you know aristotle i don't think i'd do it with as much um humanity uh, but I think going outside the things that I already know about and saying, okay, how can I find this new skill? By definition, it means that I'm constantly opening myself up to other people and, and kind of saying, what, what do you know that you can teach me? Which mm. is a bit more interesting than, I, a lot of my life is spent with people saying, what can you teach us? You know, will you come and visit this school? Will you come and talk at this thing? And it's like, well, yeah, of course. I love talking about classics. I would happily do it every day forever. I pretty much have done for the last decade, it feels like. Um, I do about 
in a normal year. I do about 75 or, or more shows a year live um, mm. talking about novels and, you know, the stuff that inspires them. Homer, in, in the case of the current book, in case of Thousand Ships, and before that, Sophocles for Children of Jocasta, and before that, the yeah. Oresteia. And so, so I'm happy to take my knowledge out, but it's lovely learning things. I don't, why doesn't everyone love learning? It's so much fun. I think it must be mean teachers in their past. Yeah, maybe. What well, they just carried that sort of penal, being penalised for curiosity often. I think, and uh, I think that could be it. I get mail still now, and I started getting essentially this email when Ancient Guide came out. So I have now been getting it for ten years because I had one this actual week um, from somebody who'd been listening to the podcast of Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics. Um, it's somebody who at school was found wanting in some way. They weren't in a high enough set or they didn't pass the 11 plus or they did, but they, they didn't then get you know, put into the right. They weren't good enough to study Latin according to the people who decided, you know, who gets Latin and who doesn't. And they have carried this with them often for a whole working life. I've always feeling like Latin was somehow for other people that it belonged to people who tried harder or were cleverer. Or, I, I have no idea where this comes from. Latin isn't a particularly difficult language. It's much easier than French, which everybody yes, had absolutely. to study yeah. for decades in this country. It's easier yeah. than German. It's maybe not easier than Spanish, but it's not, you know, and you never have to speak it. So if you're naturally shy, which many British people are, it's, it's, a, it's a really safe bet because you can just sort of sit there and take some time with it and not get embarrassed and blush. And yet somehow generations of people have been made to feel that they aren't good enough for Latin. And they get to the point where they retire from a, you know, perfectly reasonable working existence. And then they kind of think, okay, now's my time. And they either come at it because they have, well, they tell me, I guess, because they've heard the radio show or they've read a book, but the number of people who have retired and are then doing a-levels in Latin or in Greek or a degree, an OU degree. Or that I had mail a few years ago from a woman who'd started Latin when she retired and then Greek in her 70s. Which is a hard doing, language. It is hard. And then she was doing a PhD in her 80s because she'd waited her whole life. And Fantastic. I try and say the same thing, which is that classics will wait for you. You know, we, we're the ones who've limited it to an elite because it's now pretty well only taught in private schools. Not only, there are some amazing state schools yeah. really pushing the boundaries in order to be able to still teach Latin and very occasionally even Greek. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, it's something like 7% of children uh, who are taught in private schools who have access to Latin and Greek at school, or Latin or Greek at school. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've limited it to an elite and then we've hurled rocks at it because it's elitist. Like Latin didn't do anything. <laughs> did this, this, sounds like, this sounds like something else then that you really care about. I mean, I think here we're reaching something is that um, I was going to use classics in the ancient world as, as a frame for what we might discuss. But maybe it's actually in itself a belief in that, you know, that you, you obviously think the study of the ancient world um, and its ways is something important. I really do. And I genuinely believe it makes your life better studying it and um, you know this because in 2014, I published a book called The Amber Fury, in which I tried to disprove that. I thought, what would happen if, it's a, the only novel I've written set in the modern world, I thought, what would happen if, instead of classics always making your life better, what would happen if you expose somebody to classics at a point in their lives where it wasn't the best time for that, and they did something absolutely terrifying in response to it, what would happen then? And even then, I tried really hard to disprove my own thesis in that book. And even then, I think 
at the risk of spoiling it, although I know there are other people who read it differently at the end, I think I, I think I lose my own argument. <laughs> I think in the end, there's this kind of redemptive quality. Um, and the idea is, I think, in the last few pages, that the classics has actually, that the bad thing would have happened anyway, and that classics offers a path to redemption. That's true. It happened in a better way than it would in the Zeres. But that, that, in a novel, it's very hard to write a novel without resolution. I can't isn't ever. It, at I, the end, I mean. All my novels end, hopefully. I can't right, ever exactly. do anything else. I'm a very hopeful person, which I suppose is also a belief, but I'm not sure it's one you can acquire is it i think you're just you either have it or you don't really Do you think I is think. that just an attitude is, is it it's a tendency I've, to be hopeful or not i think it might be um i whenever i go and talk to kids about not classics but kind of being a person which i always find slightly embarrassing because god knows generally what i want to say is don't be me <laughs> that thing you're doing don't do what i'm doing um but uh, whenever i go and talk to kids about you know being generally inspiring i always tell them that i think resilience is the thing that they that's the thing that if i if it were um sleeping beauty and i were one of the fairy godmothers that gets to bestow a quality on a tiny child i would never go with beauty or grace or any of those you know i wouldn't go with anything visual to begin with even though i know we still live in a really visual world but i also wouldn't go with brilliance or talent or any of the things that you i would go with resilience because by far and away i think the thing that that differentiates people um, of equal kind of, uh, albeit differing merits, it's the ability to be able to go, oh God, that hurt, and then stand up again anyway and go, okay, <laughs> let's try again. Do you draw any of that from, from, from the ancient world, the idea about resilience? While you were speaking, I was trying to think of their sort of precedents for, for this idea of human resilience. I'm afraid to say I mostly draw it from um, Dick Van Dyke and the Fantastics, his barbershop quartet, singing well <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you should be i don't think you should be afraid to say that i think i that's embrace perfect. saying yeah. this yeah no for, for his version of singing um you know dust yourself off and start all over again it's, i really <laughs> believe it it's like i yes i that is where i get it from i clean my flats to that uh, because it's full of joie de vivre and who doesn't want yeah. to clean their flats See, i thought you might say it. i thought you were going to say something like yes you know i i draw it from from the from classical Lucretius. world yeah. yeah and the greeks are realizing that they were alone in the universe and had to cultivate their own resilience you know as human and... beings carving out a place for... <laughs> and also dick van dyke and also dick van dyke who i genuinely think has has aced being a human as as well as anyone ever has really i think he's basically gone through the through the world trying to bring joy everywhere and you know that looks to me like a pretty noble endeavor I think you're the first person who's, who's declared the way of Dick Van Dyke as being one of your core values or beliefs. <laughs> Honestly, I is. I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good man. He's a good person. I can, you know, that, that's definitely the case. He's still going strong, being good, isn't he? I think he yeah. says good things about uh, the situation in America from time to time. And he, yeah, I think he really cares. Dances. Yeah, exactly. And there he is in his 90s, still dancing. Who doesn't want to be that person? Your novel, The Amber Fury, traced sort of, it was, it was really, it moved implacably towards its sort of, you know, uh, almost preordained conclusion in a really... You know me, uh, I love a Greek tragedy. Well, I was going, <laughs> this is what I was going to come on to. This is what I was going to come on to, because y y there's that theme in, in that novel. Um, and then you talked to earlier about Aristotle, obviously, for personal reasons, had this awareness of luck and contingency and you know, mm. the contingent nature of our um lives and what happens to us and so on is this a theme for you is this something that you know in the back of your mind you do think about a lot this this 
the inevitable contingency of our lives and the role of luck or you obviously don't believe in fate you're not going to believe in fate are you but you you know the the time i most had to think about fate was was the in-between book was the children of jocasta which is my retelling of the oedipus story because of course oedipus is is all about fate it's like this is somebody who before they're even born Mm. is destined to have this horrendous life ahead of them and this is a question that was being asked as the story was developing in the fifth century um you could have gone to see oedipus tyrannus oedipus the king oedipus rex as sometimes people call it um at one um theater festival and then you could have seen it would have been a a re-performance by that stage i think then you would have um seen the frogs aristophanes frogs where the two playwrights of euripides and aeschylus in the underworld because they're both dead now um are discussing whether oedipus was born unlucky or whether he became unlucky um so in other words was he always unlucky because his fate was going to lead him in this terrible direction or or did he acquire it as he went along and these terrible things happened to it's like this question has been being asked for two and a half thousand years and i don't have the right answer all i can tell you is that in jocasta and i think it's explicit actually in amber in the amber fury they they have the conversation um, because guilt and responsibility are um, extremely important elements in the later part of the novel mm. um, and in the end my conclusion is that I don't know how much these things are predestined and I, th- I think at a neurological level um, we, we now seem to have no free will at all neurologists are taking it all off us Kirsten. right it's going all um, the time yeah and yet I still think people are responsible for their actions so that may not be a position I can defend t- to the happiness of a scientist and I'm quite happy to accept that but as a personal philosophy, I think it doesn't matter to me what your free will is. What matters is that you take responsibility for the actions that you perform. And I'm very, to be fair, I'm quite flexible with that for other people. It's not just for me where I think Mm. I should get a buy. I think generally I will always take someone's behavior on the grounds of intent rather than effect. If someone hurts my feelings, but I'm really confident they didn't mean to, I will get over it much more quickly than if somebody sets out to, to be horrible to me, which doesn't happen that often, perhaps because <laughs> I spend a great deal of time looking for it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't mind. I'm prepared to extend that latitude to other people. I think we should take responsibility for when we hurt people, even if we didn't mean to. But if, if somebody is clearly sorry or they clearly didn't mean to, I'm generally more forgiving. Than I would otherwise be. There's interesting beliefs to hold in combination, aren't they? At the same time, yes, a commitment yeah. to the idea of contingency and, you know, that something's out of your control and, or maybe everything is. And then at the same time that you've got to take responsibility. Yeah, I'm a very responsible person for, for no particularly good reason. I think I just grew up being very responsible and I was. Is it upbringing? Face- it was family? I suppose it must be. Um, you have to ask my therapist, Andrew. I just can't help. Um, yeah, no, I think I just... What would I, your therapist say? To, <laughs> to, to... <laughs> something about not using Zoom as a therapy session? I'm not sure. Something like that, I imagine, but in German. Um, so, yes, I think, yeah, you're right. It is. A, it's, I, I'm perfectly happy to allow the inherent contradictions. I suppose my feeling is that... Um, I know that I'm incredibly lucky. I know that I've been incredibly lucky to get to here. And it doesn't, when bad things happen to me, I still really reel with the you know, pain of it and the unfairness of it and all of those things. I'm absolutely no more saintly slash secular saintly than anyone else. Um, and yet I try to be aware, even in those moments. 
And you have seen me at moments when I've been in quite a pickle, I think it's fair to say. I try to be aware that I've been enormously lucky to get to here. And so my feeling is that you can at least try and pace some of that back or forwards, whichever way you prefer. So I was very lucky. I got to study classics at school with a brilliant teacher. I know most people don't have that. And I have literally dedicated a year, 10 years of my life Mm. to taking classics everywhere I can, to taking it all over the world where the opportunity has come up, to taking it to state schools, to taking it to, you know, and sometimes I'm talking to audiences who already have access to these things. Um, And lots of times I'm going up, you know, to a state school visit or, um, there's an incredible school in Walthamstow, Calmscott School, that I try and visit once a year. I'm, I'm hoping we'll still be able to do it this year, where the teachers taught themselves Latin so they could teach the kids. And then That's they taught great. themselves Greek because they thought, hey, everything's just too easy. And you think, well, if they can be bothered to do that, I can be bothered to go and visit their, their school and talk to their kids. And, you know, it, it just always feels like such a, such a treat. I had a Facebook memory come up this week. Um, which I really like. It always reminds me of things that I forgot because I did them in such a rush. And I think it was two years ago. It was the end of their summer term and their reward, these kids reward for going to after school Greek class and their teachers either that year or the year before sat the GCSE the same time as the kids did. They were literally a week ahead. So that was just, I can still hardly talk about it without crying, but their reward for being so brilliant and working so hard was to go to the British Museum and I would talk to them about anything they liked, any Greek pot, any statue, as much nudity, as much, as much <laughs> violence, as much lasciviousness as we could find. And These I, are the real reasons why classics is... I'm <laughs> just saying. So, yeah, I think I'd, I'd rather, you know, self-deprecating slash humble braggishly said, you know, your prize for, for doing really well at Greek is an hour with me in the museum, prize for not doing really well is two hours with me in the museum. <laughs> but, you know, I guess I think, well, I am really keen and I do really want these students to be able to have access to this stuff and how miraculous that they end up with teachers who, who are prepared to do so much. In order that to is a great, I mean, that's a great, again, that's lucky, lucky, lucky for them. So lucky. Um, but let, let's, let's uh, stay with this topic just for a couple of minutes, because uh, obviously we do have to deal with it. It's so important to you um, in, in a meta sense. Um, classics today and, and, and the promotion of classics. Um, yes. You've said that you think it gives... Um, well, I think you were sort of talking about it being a joy to study, and yes. that's one of the reasons why um, you want to spread it. What, what, why else do you think it's... I mean, why else have you chosen um, to... Uh, spend your time promoting that or maybe another way why do you what is it that makes you think that people should study classics should have that opportunity what are the other yeah, reasons it's that it's one I think important. everybody should yeah, have that's the opportunity the more important one, yeah. because you know every now and then somebody asks if I would make you know Latin compulsory and what I would take off a curriculum for it it's like I definitely I would I definitely wouldn't <laughs> I'd be really tempted but I can just about acknowledge that you know I don't think of course I don't think that other subjects that students are already doing. Yeah, the curriculum is packed as it is. There are loads of things that I would love kids to be learning about. Um, And I can see that Latin isn't the first in that queue. And that is completely fair enough. But I would love all students to have the opportunity to learn classics of some sort if they would like to. It seems to me just awful that this, this part of our communal history, our collective history, is withheld from such an enormous percentage of students as they go through the school system. So that's another reason, because it's part of our history. You think it it's is a, part of our history. It's a joy to example, study, it's part of our history. 
Yeah, and in Scotland, for example, where Scottish Latinism was an enormous thing. <laughs> you know, at, at one point, about a quarter of, of Scottish history was being written in Latin. How mm. mad is that? Mm. If you stop teaching it, as I think I'm right to say, I made a documentary about it a few years ago for Radio Force, unless it's changed since then. I don't think you can now learn Latin in any state school in Scotland. At the time, you certainly couldn't, wow. um, because that was the peg for the programme. And it's like, this isn't just our collective ancient history you're being cut off from. This is your own, by classicist standards, recent history Very modern. that you're being cut off from. And that's not good enough, I don't think. It's not acceptable to say, oh, well, you don't need to know about that because, because what? Because kids in private schools will learn about that and they're the natural ruling class. I'm sorry, I have a problem with that. Yes. So I don't think it's okay. And David Aronovich very brilliantly once pointed out at a debate we were doing about you know, whether or not you should study Latin, um, that if all schools had Latin available to them, then private schools would start teaching hieroglyphs. They always need a reason to, <laughs> right? They always need a reason to make people pay the money. You know, it's like we have to offer something that, that regular schools don't. Otherwise, why would anyone pay? And I, I of course, he's right. Um, and yet, I don't, I don't feel as strongly, I suppose, um, partly because I can't read hieroglyphs. So I guess um, my loss, and that's something I would have to fix first before I felt as passionately about it. But I feel like this stuff belongs to us all. This is our collective history, our philosophical history, our political history. It's I suppose what you're also saying, everything. Yeah, but it, it's but you're, what you've just said about it being um, a subject that historically has been elite. Yes. Um, I guess you're also saying that um, there should be a sort of leveling up, aren't you? Of it's course. not just that the, yeah. Because I mean, my own, my own, um, this podcast isn't about me, it's about you, it's about what you believe. But well, uh, I think that's all changed now. <laughs> <laughs> but let me tell you yeah. <laughs> something about <laughs> what Andrew believes. <laughs> no, I mean, I could say 20. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. I'm speaking much more now than I have in previous. Uh, Episode. that's because we're friends in real life I that's guess. true so, yes yeah. exactly which isn't to denigrate your relationship with any of your no, everyone all the others oh, but, <laughs> hope yeah. they're not listening we have a common interest and we've been friends for ages so it's not yeah. that surprising that exactly that's right when it's us. that's right um and i think that you know that's definitely my experience you know i was the the first of my family to go to university i studied mm -hmm. classics at school at, 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 at an independent school not because I was from a middle class background or because my parents had any money, you know, my mother didn't, doesn't. Um, but because I was whisked there by the government's assisted place scheme, you know, right. you know about that scheme. It ran in the eighties and it was sort of, if you were um, poor, basically, yeah. um, and your family was poor and you scored like within the top 10% of the local entrance exams, the state paid for you to go to your closest independent school. And it was a really weird scheme actually operating you know, from, 1979 up to 1997 and I still look back now and think a bit like you were saying about Aristotle and contingency like if that hadn't happened to me that one little moment I would not have all the things in my head about the Roman world about the Greek world that have literally helped me make sense of my life you of know, everything. Make sense of my I experience know. of everything exactly and you and I both I think I know we have that in common you know there's such a resource there for making meaning and making sense out of your life when you've got the uh, classical thinkers sort of with you and your journey through life and like everyone should have that I really think so because I feel exactly the same way the idea of being without them if mm. it's, it's, I, I, I'm not sure I would I, it would be like losing a sense you know mm. exactly I, I genuinely don't know how I would move through the world without that constant companionship of it yeah. I suppose 
and I think it, you know, I've made a habit. I didn't particularly intend to, it's just gone that way. Um, I think it's just in comparison with other people who talk about classics generally in the public sphere when they do. Um, but I, I think I'm often seen as trying to democratize access to classics because I care about things like the, the, um, influence of Aristotle's poetics on soap opera and it's like mm. well wait soap opera are you sure yeah yes I'm absolutely sure does that mean it's not in the wire it's also in the wire but it's still in EastEnders and that's just how it is and yeah. so I feel like there's a sort of sense that that this subject is is limited to an elite and then we're sort of given to understand that that once it's in it's in their territory and then it's only their stuff that it applies to and that's just not true mm. you know and it's it's never been true uh, right from the very start of you know to pick a, a vastly contentious example um when the parthenon freeze was uh, brought to london then there were mass-produced copies of it which people you know incredibly cheaply people could buy them and, and across the country, they sold in enormous quantities. And one of the things I love about that is that it, it's something which has been going on since at least Roman times. You know, and for the Romans, they, they were buying mass-produced lamps of Zeus and leaders, you know, Zeus in the form of a swan seducing, we found them at Pompeii. And it's like mass-produced classical art for the masses has existed since classical art was new. You know, it wasn't always just for an elite. And, and these huge buildings, the Parthenon itself, of course, and the, the marbles which remain in Athens there so that we can um, see them in their con context. You know, these weren't designed to be locked away, hidden away. They were designed to be displayed for everyone to see. This was a huge temple. We might not believe in the same gods. We might not believe in any gods at all. But we can, you know, the sort of civic importance of these buildings and of mm. these stories is undeniable. And that's, it still seems to me appalling to suggest that, that somehow this stuff should be, it's okay that this stuff is just limited to people who can afford to pay for it. Why and how did that happen? Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a, the closest parallel between Greek tragedy and soap opera is that they're free to access or relatively free to access um, that, you know, you could have a subsidized, I, before everyone writes in, I do know that there's a license fee, but you could listen to, for example, the archers without a license fee. And that is a soap opera following the principles. Um, I don't, don't get cross about the, the monologues. I know everyone is cross about the monologues, uh, but that's a pre-Scalian <laughs> version. Anyway, but this stuff was originally, you know, part of your democratic civic engagement that you went to the theatre to see the Dionysia, the Festival of Dionysus with three Greek tragedies and then a satire play across three separate days. And you didn't pay because it was paid for by your rich fellow citizens who did that instead of income tax, paid liturgies instead of income tax. And, you know, this was part of being a, a person. Now, of course, within enormous limitations, um, only Athenian citizens are allowed at some of these festivals. That means men, probably not women. Um, we know that foreigners were allowed at some festivals because uh, Aristophanes is prosecuted for having been rude about the city in front of foreigners. But, you know, the, the polis, the citizenry of Athens is extremely limited. Still, though, it meant that you didn't need to be rich to go. Well, this isn't the Classical Association podcast. It is the Human UK podcast. So we, we, we might Wait, have to... Wait, what? <laughs> I don't know. Storms false off. pretenses. <laughs> I've got you under false Who pretenses. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we'll move away a little bit from um, uh, these themes. Obviously, everyone should be fascinated to hear us talk about these, but nonetheless. Um, and on to another um, theme, 
I mean, it's such a big feature of your work that theme seems too small a word for it, um, of, but of all your work, um, which of course is uh, the place and position and experiences, unique experiences of women. Yes. I think it's fair to say that you have um, in, in recent books been closing ever further inwards on um, yes. women. Uh, a new book out this year, next this year. This makes it sound like I'm in disguise and I've infiltrated them. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a sort of Greek Greek comedy to be had here. Right? Natalie, I, Natalie I think Hayes amongst the, the women. <laughs> I think Aristophanes yes. already did it. God oh, it's, there's nothing new. Um, but it's true, isn't it? And especially, yes. I mean, obviously most recently, A Thousand Ships, yes. which is all about, well, there is, there's not a single um, male narrator in no, there, it's that, only that's the point. there are male characters, but all the stories are told from women's perspectives. Yes. And, and then there's a, another book on the way. Um, uh, Pandora's Jar, but that's nonfiction. So that's, Pandora's again, Jar. that's about 10 women in Greek myth, but that's um, a nonfiction book looking at how their stories have been distorted essentially through time. So, for example, Pandora to the Greeks is um, the Ur woman. There, there are no women before Pandora. Um, and on ancient visual art, artifacts she's only ever shown in the process of being created or having just been created um, she's never shown with any kind of receptacle of any sort uh, but she certainly isn't shown with a box uh, and that's for the excellent reason that the box is a mistranslation by Erasmus and um, the word pithos in Greek meaning jar is translated. Did, did Erasmus not know that? I don't know whether it was you know oh it only seems like a small thing or a big thing I mean it's a it's a really good question um as to why it, it caught on that he translates pithos mm. to pixis jar to box mm. and I feel like there must be uh, there are plenty of translators who've made bigger kind of fudges than that and yet they haven't had the same impact but Pandora is never referenced almost at all now without reference to the idea of the box and the thing that you open that's full of terrible things. And of course, if you go back to Hesiod, to Aesop, um, and to other sources, we can see that the, the jar um, isn't hers. It's given to her by, by Hermes. It's, a, it's, a, it's clearly come from Zeus, who's had her created. Um, sometimes she opens the jar. Sometimes it, it is opened. And sometimes her husband, Epimetheus, brother of Prometheus, his name means foresight, Epimetheus means hindsight. So that should tell us something about them straight away. Sometimes Epimetheus opens it and Aesop, he does. Right? And sometimes the jar has good things in it and not bad things. And the only thing which is consistent in every version of the story is that Elpis, hope or expectation, because it's not necessarily positive, is, is saved in, in the jar. But even that is contentious because is that a good thing she's kept hope safe for us or is it a bad thing all these terrible things are in the world and we don't even have hope because that's in the freaking jar and we don't have a go on it and so it's an incredibly complicated story that has no right version and yet through time what happens is she becomes eve you know she becomes entirely merged with the yeah. idea and there are paintings where she's described as eva prima pandora mm. you know they, they have literally merged into one woman and so she just becomes, you know, a pretty girl who opens a box and causes the downfall of man, boo hiss. It's like, and so I this have is, a problem with that. This is the point, is it? This is your point, is that you're, and so it's, it's the, the, the characters 
Um, what you said is obviously true of Pandora, but that seems not exactly incidental, but but sort of secondary to your main point, which is look at how women have been represented. Look at how women have been represented. And sometimes it's ancient misogyny in action. Hesiod, not a super fan of women, although he hates his brother at least as much. As a yeah, he hates poem. everyone. He does, he's quite the grump, isn't yeah. he? And his version of Pandora, of course, is all about a bad brother and a bad lady. And it's like, oh, God, <laughs> excuse me, Dr. Freud, <laughs> I have a time travel job for you. Um, but generally, these stories have um, often had women at their centre in the ancient world. Um, when Euripides wrote about the Trojan War, we have eight, I think, of his tragedies surviving to us today, which focus on the Trojan War. One of them, Orestes, has a man as the title character. Seven of them have women as the title characters. Uh, I can do this, hang on. Andromache, Hecabe, Helen, Iphigenia and Aulis, Iphigenia among the Tarians, Electra and Troades, Trojan women. So seven out of eight of his Trojan War plays focus on women. So when people say, oh, isn't it anachronistic putting women at the center of the Trojan War? It's like, definitely you should call Euripides and tell him that. Oh, wait. <laughs> um, I was convinced when I wrote The Children of Jocasta that the story of Oedipus would stand up to being told from his wife's perspective, from Jocasta's perspective. Um, and indeed, their daughter is Mani. Um, not least because there are so many different versions of it again in the ancient world, which people just don't know. You know, the version that's in Sophocles is the version which prevails. Um, but it is uncanny. I mean, it, it really does make you think. I mean, I don't know if I respond it just because I'm, like we were saying a moment ago, you know, really immersed in those stories and that culture, mm. um, or whether it was just because I was reading it as a man. Um, but I would hope a relatively sensitive man to these different so perspectives. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. But, but, you know, but nonetheless, as a man. And, you know, Children of Jocasta, it, 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 it was really difficult to get sort of my head around. It felt like a new story, you know, it felt weird. It felt, um, I know, it, I did a lot of thinking about that book from that point of view, just, and then you sort of look back and you think, oh, I feel a bit ashamed of myself there. Have I, am I so unaware of a woman's perspective that reading a story that I know so well from a woman's perspective seems so new and different and makes you think such a lot? But in a way, that, that's, that's always the goal, isn't it? Is to take a story and illuminate it. And the thing is, that's been happening for as long as the story has existed. It's just that what's happened over time is we've tended to prefer one version and the other versions get lost. And Jocasta is a great example. So in Sophocles, in Oedipus Tyrannus, she has 120 lines. We don't think about it very much. Um, but she solves the puzzle of who is who and who's married to who before Oedipus does. We're told all the way through the play how clever he is, and yet she works it out before he does. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> tell me again who's the clever one in this marriage. I'm waiting. Um, and, and yeah, it, it never seems to come up. But in um, Euripides' version of her, then we get a, a completely, in the Foinasi, Phoenician women, we get a completely different, much more, into, she has this incredible monologue where she talks about um, the, the pain of, of losing her child. And it's like, how, how did we kind of miss that out before? You know, in the story that we get at, um, in Homer, that's the earliest version of the Jocasta story, she's called Epicast in, um, in the Odyssey. We only have 10 lines and the story is pretty much 50-50 um, focused on them both. And yet somehow what happens is the Sophocles version is so mighty and it is an incredible play that just pulverizes everything before it. And, and we sort of lose track of the others. And sometimes I think there's, there's a conscious effort to prefer or prioritize men's narratives. And sometimes I think it, it just sort of happens by accident um, because 
I mean, we, we you probably see as many productions of Medea, I would guess, in the average year as Oedipus, yeah. maybe more, yeah, yeah, yeah. actually, because it has a more horribly, it has a more contemporary feel. Um, and so it's still performed, you know, over and over and over again um, and, and never seems to become dated. But I think when we think about Greek tragedy, we think about Oedipus because Freud thought Oedipus was important, but Freud was totally focused on the male experience to such an extent that magnificently he could look at the decapitation of Medusa and see it as a fear of castration. And it's like, <laughs> dude, it's, it's, it's literally not about you. <laughs> what is wrong with you? I, I Sometimes mean, a gorgon is just a gorgon. <laughs> I mean, I, yes, I, I have long argued that the world would be enormously improved if everybody looked into a mirror once a day and said, it's not always about you. And then simply carried on with their day, having just remembered that for a second. But Freud would have been an early that's recipient. A pretty good, that's a pretty big belief that you've just exposed there. It, that's very I really yeah. think it. Because quite often, it's not about you. <laughs> it's really tempting to centre ourselves. You know, of course, we all want to be the hero of our own biopic, the centre of the narrative. But most of the time, most people aren't trying to antagonise you or then they're not even thinking about you. They're not ignoring you either because that's still thinking about you. Sometimes everyone is fighting their own miniature battles every day and they don't have, they don't have the bandwidth to make it all about you because you're not the only person in the world. So yes, it's not all about you. I would cheerfully go with as a, as a life belief. So curiosity, contingency, open inquiry, valuing others, appreciating their character, and it's not about you. It's not all about you, yes. Thank you, Natalie Haynes, for telling us what you believe. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> that was Natalie Haynes telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the second episode of the second season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about Humanism, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk, and consider joining as a member to support that work. You can also find out more by buying the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available at all good retailers. 